Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly, co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold, and co-host Army National Guard veteran Sean Claiborne. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. America's Heroes Group Roundtable Mental Health Matters with partner NAMI, also known as NAMI, Contra Costa. Today is Saturday, November 5th, 2022. November is Military Family Appreciation and Alzheimer's Disease Awareness Month. Our host is Cliff Kelly. I'm your co-host, Deborah Denhart, U.S. Air Force veteran. Our executive producer is Glenda Smith. Our digital media producer is Ivan Ortega, Scouts Honor Productions. Today, we're joined by partner Gigi Crowder, an executive director of NAMI Contra Costa in California. NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, on an advocacy group founded by family members of people with mental illness. And we're going to talk about updates on the implementation of 988 and its impact. Welcome, Gigi. Thank you for being here today. Great. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Well, we're pretty excited here in California, especially Northern California, because in addition to the national updates, we have some local updates around AB 988, which is named after Miles Hall, a young man who was uh, tragically killed by law enforcement in Wanna Creek, California. So Governor Newsom has signed the funding for us to uh, implement 988. That's wonderful. So let's just jump right in then, Gigi. What are some of those updates? Well, uh, here in uh, California, the governor signed the bill on September 30th, (laughs) one day before the deadline, actually, for him to sign a legislation. And so we're busy uh, putting plans in place to make sure that individuals are aware of this new three-digit number versus the much longer 1-800 number that many people couldn't have at their their fingertips. So um, some counties in our in California have actually gotten funding, ours being one of them. And then the governor actually funded twenty million dollars toward the first year of implementation. Wow. So individuals who have loved ones who live with mental health challenges, or maybe they don't have a history, but they're experiencing uh, suicidal ideation are just in crisis can now call the 988 number and get a non-police response. That's wonderful. What are your thoughts right now on the implementation of the new 988? I think we have a heavy lift like many things. Um, You can have something in place and not enough people know about it. So uh, that's our work um, across the state is to educate individuals about this new opportunity that I think will literally save lives. Why do you think it was changed? Could you repeat? I'm sorry. Why did you think it was changed? Do you think- it was changed because I think uh, now, especially after going through COVID, more mm-hmm. people are well aware of the fact that suicide rates have gone up drastically and, uh, uh, it was actually uh, former President Trump that signed the original legislation 
and uh, 2020 to allow for 988 to be heroics act. And so with mental illness impacting um, one in, I'm going to say one in four households, although the updated data is one in five, um, with mental illness affecting so many people, we had to position ourselves to be better able to respond to it, especially those that are younger now and the heightened rates of suicide. We needed to position ourselves to have a better response. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, as far as like the number, do you think, have you seen a positive result or are people welcoming it? Are they trying to incorporate it into, you know, the organizations or what do you think the response has been so far? So if you were to call uh, any number uh, that has anything to do with mental health, now you will see that if they're not in the office, there's a recorded message that Mm -hmm. says this is a threatening emergency Please hang up and call 911 if this is something where you're looking for resources and you need additional mental health support, you can hang up and call 988. So we certainly at NAMI have changed our message to indicate that individuals have that available to them now when we're not in the office. That is great. Now, I was doing a little bit of research and I I found that July 5th, um, I'm sorry, in 2005, not July 5th, mm-hmm. uh, 2005, when they implemented the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number 1-800-273-8255, that first year, there were 46,000 mental health-related calls just in that first year. Right. And we in, in California, we have the contract, NAMI Contra Costa does, for the COVID-19 response. And I tell you, our Phones bring off the hook. There's wow. been a 67, 67% increase in calls since the implementation of 988. And that's only been, uh, what, less than three months ago. So it indicates right. the need was always there for it and that when people have that's easier to access, they're more likely to pick up the phone and call. Absolutely. So you take calls, did you say? NAMI has a phone line? Yeah. Yeah, we've always had what we call a warm line, um, and that program continues on. And we answer the phone Monday through Friday directly, but then on the weekend, there's um, no one in the office to answer. We have a phone service, and then they send us out an email, and we respond to that. But we have an additional contract in California for a program they call Cal Hope, and those are responded to by what we call a chat line. And so mm-hmm. that never stops. It's, it's operated 24-7. We're not funded 24-7, but because of our understanding of the needs, we have staffed it 24-7. And some people are more comfortable with chat line, which is like a text message. And then mm-hmm. some are want to talk to someone. And so we have a, made a plan in place to respond to all callers, you know, immediately if they're calling that um, Cal Hope number but if it's individuals that are you know just looking for some resources we call within the next four to six hours wow that takes a lot of teamwork to to be coordinate that now how did national how did nami come about how did you launch this well the national um, alliance of mental illness was started actually by two moms and one of 
in excuse me in Wisconsin, and then at the same time, our affiliate there's 600 NAMIs across the nation, and they all came together because individuals who had loved ones generally who live with schizophrenia, bipolar, or the more severe mental illnesses, wanted to make sure that the county systems or the jurisdictions that were responsible, that took their tax dollars, were meeting their needs. Uh, Mental health has always been under-resourced around research and the individuals having the same level of parity for their mental health as you would for physical health. So there's always been a need for advocacy and ironically, just as there were two moms that started the National Alliance in 1989, two moms in Wana Creek, California, the same place Sadly Miles um, lived, um, started, didn't call it NAMI, but then found out about the National NAMI and thought it was best to join forces with them. And so we've been doing that ever since, largely um, volunteer-ran along with, you know, now we have some funding, but the core is is basically education. So no, it's, a, it's amazing to me that, you know, we see this need just like in 2005, 46,000 calls um, in one year. And I'm sure it's, you know, who knows what the number is today, but just the need for mental health, you know, mental illness support like NAMI, you know. Right. Um, it's just amazing. Um, it's just such a great need there. And I was wondering, you know, what are some things that your group has accomplished to see changes in advocating for family members with mental illness? Well, one of the campaigns that NAMI National has in place is a help not handcuffed because we recognize mm. people who live with mental health challenges are often criminalized because of mm. the lack of knowledge about mental illness, individuals making decisions, um, Poor decisions because uh, so many of our unsheltered individuals are just on survivor mode. So they're breaking laws and getting arrested, but they're not often um, assessed for whether they have mental health. And sometimes, because people who live with mental illness will sub- medicate with substances, alcohol, and other illicit drugs. People tend to write them off, not recognizing they're dealing with an untreated mental illness or some trauma they've had. And, of course, that's a large number of people who identify veterans who are often not um, not getting the services that they need. And uh, we really work hard at NAMI also to lift up that very special population of individuals, veterans. That's that's awesome that you do that. I know with a lot of, you know, some veterans don't know that by saying they're veterans, say if they're in that situation, that they could help get additional help, right? Exactly. So we have formed a pretty close uh, relationship with our local veteran um, administrative programs. And uh, we've been doing some campaigning with veterans around 988 as well. Oh, that's great. And in and, and our region. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, education. Are you able to go to and speak to organizations or have you had any, you know, opportunity to do that? And if so, what, what organizations are you able to, like, reach out to on education? What, 
Well, what we have um, decided is the you know, kind of strategic approach we want to use is with younger individuals because we start seeing the numbers of suicides going up so high for people under the age of 30. We launched a campaign called Mental Health Friendly Communities. And so we're having young people get trained themselves and then become the um, messengers. And as a part of that is the education around 988. NAMI has programs like And Then the Silence, which is about individuals from the age of 30 and under sharing what they could put it, what they what needs to be put in place when a person is having a difficult time mm-hmm. but feels like they don't have anyone to talk to about it. And that's a very um, evidence-based practice at this point, um, tools that you can just recognize. So mm-hmm. it falls in line with the California program called Knowing the Signs. When someone's struggling, it just creates a safer, more trusted environment for young people to talk among themselves without feeling like there's going to be negative consequences or misunderstanding. Absolutely. That's wonderful. That is so, so, so great. So educating them to know how to deal with other people dealing with mental illness. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And then Mm -hmm. teachers and parents as partners. So Mm -hmm. we do programs that work with teachers align them with parents who may have a loved one who lives with mental illness so there's less stigma associated with it and you're able to identify the mental illness versus a student that just might be you know seen as behavioral problem no this is this is actually a chemical imbalance uh, based on them living with maybe uh, ADHD and so we do that type of education and we also do education for family members called Family to Family, which is also evidence-based. And that generally because when people first identify the fact that they have a, a young one in their home, a child perhaps, that are starting to have some behaviors, it's real important for the individuals to understand the symptoms of the illness and why their individual might be uh, experiencing some of the symptoms associated with uh, early onset of mental health challenges. And so the education piece is really important. And then uh, last month we talked about the work we do with faith leaders because Mm. when individuals are in distress, they often first turn to their faith leaders for support. So it's really Mm. important for them to understand what mental health is, illness is, and then what it's not so that they're not over-spiritualizing and they're really providing the type of support that would be helpful to the individual who's turning to them as a first responder. Wow. So we try and cover the gamut. And, of mm-hmm. course, if we have a program that's in line so that individuals who live with mental illness are not being, you know, criminalized, we also have CIT training, which a big part of 988 is training law enforcement to also have the skill set needed to be more compassionate and be the person that's great yes that's that's wonderful now i know i've talked to a mom who you know her son actually you know um ended up did committing suicide at the age of 19 Uh and she um started an organization but she had shared with me that you know she's seeing kids even talking about suicide at the age of seven so the younger you know we don't we don't think about 
you know, we're always thinking like, oh, adults, right? Like, okay, or, or like mid-20s or maybe teenagers. But I was shocked, Gigi, when she told me that. Yeah, when I first started hearing the numbers hearing of cases where people were so young, it was, you know, really difficult to swallow. But then I do think that organizations started focusing on the fact that it does happen at a very young age, and that's why some of the programs that we have in place were birthed out of a need to respond and to give the resources to not just the individuals but the parents and their mm-hmm. teachers. At NAMI, we have a program called BASICS. Um, we just did a training this past week because a lot of in our county and across the nation, anywhere from 40 to 70 percent of the young people who are in juvenile hall that they've committed a crime have a diagnosed mental illness. So we have to start looking at preventative approaches, recognizing it earlier so that they're not a part of that, what's called the uh, food-to-prison pipeline. It's not Mm. specific to any one community. It becomes very prevalent when unaddressed mental health challenges are there. So doing our work as a nation to Mm -hmm. better understand mental illness and so we can give individuals treatment instead of taking them away from the family, unless it's indicated that they should be, but really being more compassionate and creating a safe place for even the youngest individual to talk about their feelings. Yes. And I know for the, for the, the family I, I spoke about, you know, her, her son was, you know, in all these different organizations and even not the non-classic situation where you would think, oh, you know, that person might commit suicide. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you found that, you know, you can't assume that everyone, you know, just ask, you know, do you have certain questions you train your, you know, um, children to like, you know, the kids in, in your organizations to ask, you know, like, are you okay? Or do you have certain things or tips that you could share with, you know, just kind of educating our audience on maybe some things they can ask about or how they can become more educated if they, you know, just kind of being aware of the surroundings and the people around yeah. them. I think it's really important for parents to, you know, look at any shift from their young person's behavior, more withdrawal, can't sleep, eat over or under eating, more isolation. All of those are signs that we have to look at, but communication is really the best key. So as we move to a more hustle and bustle approach, sometimes kids and adults feel like, sadly, that they that the world would be better without them. And they're not able to negotiate for themselves how, no, it would be hurtful to your family for you not to be here. Mm -hmm. So just really a lot of reassurance. Kids need to, it's more than just saying, I love you. We really have to show our kids they're lovable so that they carry a skill set of being able to speak out, feel safe when they share, and then just feel like, you know, they're the best thing that ever happened to the parents, you know. Right. And as we started moving in the direction of um, a faster pace, I think the benefit of COVID was that we were forced to slow down and right. uh, spend more time with family. Absolutely. But at the same time, children were more exposed to social media and other harms. Um, we're now seeing, sadly, um, that young people are in and their lives, and it's coming from places outside of the parents. Because it's, uh, 
cyberbullying, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So monitoring also the gadgets and limiting the use of certain gadgets. Um, And uh, the school teachers are saying the biggest challenge they have now is getting kids to not uh, bring in their cell phones. But if you're a parent now and you're looking at gun violence in school, the parents are saying, no, I would love to have my children have their phone with them. Mm -hmm. It's a safety device now. It's not a distraction. So those are all things we have to figure out. Absolutely. I I think, too, like just kind of like the stigma around mental illness. You know, there are a lot of cultures that they don't think about, oh, I have to talk about how I feel, right? Or I want to see a therapist. You know, there are some lot of stigmas around that, and a lot of people don't really look at to that. You know, we see the doctor for our checkups, right? But we don't see someone for our mental health checkups. Do you find that to be the case in, in certain cultures? Well, or? well, when I was serving as the ethnic services manager for a county here in California, every community, and it doesn't have anything to do with even how much money you have in your pocket, all individuals have stigma associated with mental illness because we have not done a good enough job to treat it as we do any other physical ailment as a medical condition. Mm-hmm. So many cultures will say, oh, in my culture, we don't talk about it because of this. COVID actually benefited us because more and more people started talking about how they were feeling. And so we just have to take this opportunity to share what it is and what it's not and not demonize individuals who live with it, not shed them in a negative light so that there's a safe place for them to talk about how they're feeling. Because uh, too many people are self-medicating. We have the challenge now with fentanyl and other opioids and Mm -hmm. alcoholism. It's because people have not been able to talk about and get the support they need utilizing psychiatrists, social workers, et cetera, because there's some pretty good medications out there now. I think I'm seeing more commercials for individuals who are living with depression, for example, and bipolar disorder. And so that's going to help us, right, kind of take away some of the negative stereotypes because the media often would portray individuals who live with mental illness as being more violent when we know people who live with mental illness are usually more often going to be victims of violence, not the perpetrators of violence. So just, again, the educational piece so that people feel more open and creating natural um, partners and safe places for individuals. Like we probably at NAMI Contra Costa introduced an additional 10 to 12 support groups because our motto is you are not alone. So we have mm-hmm. to demonstrate that by having a safe places that people can go to, even by Zoom, where they can share their feelings. And then they get there and they realize, okay, what I'm dealing with, there's other people dealing with it. And when this person was dealing with it, they put these things together and now they're feeling better. So wow. yeah. that's, you know, that's a part of, of what we try and put in place so that people don't feel so isolated and like whatever they're carrying is um, it's, it's unbearable. Like there's no, you know, it's always going to be like this. No, we have at our office, I've intentionally hired individuals who carry a personal history of living with mental illness, but who became med compliant or started using skills that uh, help them 
have better, more good days, you know, mm-hmm. and connection to purpose so that when people come in looking for services, whether it's a family member or someone, they could see examples of individuals that may have been right where they are or where their loved one is, but doing so much better. That's so great. Yeah. Now, do you feel like, I know this could be a stereotype, I'm not sure, but in NAMI, have you seen like men kind of think, oh, I can't seek help because I'm a man. I'm, I'm supposed to be the strong one over women. I don't know if there's there's a trend there um, that men think that they shouldn't have to deal with that. They kind of put things off. Yeah. You know? Now, that's why I've seen it play out culturally, and then meaning the male versus female. Men are less likely to show signs of what they consider weakness, and men consider talking about depression a sign of weakness. So you do have more women who seek out uh, support groups, et cetera, than males. So sometimes what we've done at NAMI is we've said a men's faith group or a men's, Mm -hmm. you know, group group versus um, we look at the situation that brought the person there. Wow. Okay. To get them there. That's you know, awesome. like they're supporting someone else versus them having, right. you know, the primary issue. Because of, that's the work we have to do as a society to make people feel more comfortable with everyone should be talking to someone. Yes. Thank you so much, Gigi. Um, we thank have to you. close it out now. And thank you so much for being our guest partner with NAMI Contra Costa. Thank and you I for will, having me. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.